Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. Top five employment-related lawsuits and how to avoid them. Hi, I'm Mike Vinoy with Assure. Uh, have a great guest to unpack this topic today. Uh, my guest is Brian Schinker, a New York-based attorney with the office of Jackson & Lewis. Brian's practice focuses on representing employers in a wide range of workplace matters, as well as preventative advice and counseling. Brian has extensive experience in defending class and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. He has successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor. Brian regularly handles cases before courts, administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for having me, Mike. Okay, uh, a straightforward topic, but man, just a, a, I think a mountain of data to, that we could unpack here. I, I just wanted to try to raise awareness. We talk about this law, that law, and how to stay compliant in, in best practices. Maybe just we step back here and think, what is the biggest risk to a small business owner, right? To to, to a small business, mid-sized company where, okay, maybe I'm not doing something the way I should. Uh, and maybe uh, maybe I'm, I'm not handling my I-9s right. Uh, uh, I get audited and I get fined. And, and these things can be expensive and, and, and troublesome. But I think the biggest existential threat that businesses face is lawsuits. And whether these lawsuits come from uh, a disgruntled employer, employee, or from an agency, uh, these really, the dollar amounts can be so big that, that they are existential threats. W w would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's, you know, an individual issue or oftentimes, you know, these lawsuits can, you know, group employees together, class actions where, you know, liability just grows exponentially. So so here's what I want to do. I, we, we picked five. I, I, what I would probably consider the five most common, probably in this order, but not necessarily. So I, I want to tee up the topic and you just give some use cases here where, where areas where maybe somebody thought they were doing nothing wrong. And because we always try to give the audience here the benefit of the doubt. I don't think anybody is trying to break laws here. Right. But part of HR is being proactive uh, a bit of an insurance policy, if you will, to get ahead of these things to prevent these expensive lawsuits and fines. So the first one I want to talk about and unpack here is around discrimination and retaliation. Um, and specifically, there's there's a use case I want to explore. There's a moving company in California. Part of their advertising was that they, you know, kind of touted this fit staff, you know, this not necessarily even young, but this young fit buff kind of staff. I, I think probably there is a component of, yes, we're physically fit enough and strong enough to actually handle uh, the workload, but there's maybe a bit of a sex appeal. It was part of the advertising, part of part of the culture. They had no idea that they were doing anything wrong, uh, and, and they got hit hard. Can, can you kind of give us the rest of the story here? Yeah, so uh, this case, it was something where – uh, you know, the EOC was investigating this uh, moving company for a number of years, which, you know, isn't necessarily the EOC's MO. You know, they receive complaints uh, and pursue them. But, you know, this one they initiated on their own. They were monitoring it. And right. They, they recently filed a claim against this moving company. Uh, and, you know, like you said, the company said, hey, you know, we didn't think we we're doing anything wrong. We, we, you know, advertise as, you know, these young, maybe college students, young, fit, uh, you know, athletic people. Uh, and so, you know, it brings up a very, you know, interesting element of, uh, you know, the Title Seven and, you know, discrimination where, uh, you know, it's a, it's a small and it's a narrow exception. Uh, but, you know, this company, it, it may have a defense because there's something called uh, a bona fide occupational qualification. 
that's a handful. We really just call it a BFOQ. Uh, and this is, again, I, I think we should start off taking a step back that the law says you cannot discriminate against employees based on a number of protected categories, race, religion, uh, mm-hmm. sex, age, things like that. Right. Uh, but if there's a BFOQ, a bona fide occupational qualification that applies to your business, then essentially what the law says is you might be able to, we'll say, we won't say discriminate, but you might be able to make determinations uh, and have you know uh, qualifications based on protected categories. Uh, and so the requirement of this, and again, it's strict requirements, uh, and we'd see if they, this moving company might fit it, would be that you, know, you can hire employees of just a specific protected category as long as that restriction is related to the business's particular characteristics or needs, and it's justified by you know the job's essential tasks, right? So, can you give an example, Brian, where where that would be, where the BFOQ would be legitimate and defensible? Right. So you know we've all seen you know various you know restaurants that might uh, you know show us you know for instance. Um, you know, they might only hire women as servers, right? And look, it's really about the nature of that business, right? Because we all know that men also, or, you know, anyone can be a server. Uh, So, you know, it really looks at, you know, what the business is and what the essence of that business is, right? These are all the inquiries the EEOC and a judge would look into, right? What is this business? What what is it about, right? So, you know, it might be easier to kind of show ones that don't apply, right? For instance, you know, so number one, this never applies to race. A BFOQ, you can never apply race, but somewhat similar, we can apply it to national origin, right? So let's say we have a, uh, a company that operates uh, a tutoring service or school for uh, people interested in learning French. And so the company says you know, they are only going to hire native born French people as their instructors, uh, as their instructors. Uh, you know, the employer might say this is necessary to provide, you know, role models for the students maybe, but in reality, the essence of the business is not providing role models or providing a real French person, right? The, the essence of the business is teaching French. So, you know, that would be one where the EOC would say, no, you can't just hire you know, people of French origin because that's not the essence of your business. Um, you know, similarly, you know, and, and this is, these are areas where I think employers often get into trouble when we apply this to sex. And so I think, again, using a number of justifications that don't establish a BFQ might be the best way to learn this, right? So, uh, you know, for instance, you have an employer that says, you know, no women can work on the loading dock of the warehouse because, you know, we need to lift packages of, you know, 100 pounds or more. And, you know, they say, well, we, we don't have a woman who can lift 100 pounds uh, you know, so, so that's our requirement. But again, women can carry heavy things and some women, just like some men can carry things over a hundred pounds. So that would, some men can't exactly. Right. So it's not something that's dependent on sex, right? Strength not dependent on sex. So, you know, a few other justifications. And again, you know, these are ones that I've seen, you know, when employers aren't even thinking about a BFOQ, but just, uh, you know, oftentimes employers will think, you know, I can, you know, that they think they're being, you know, nice or kind by saying, oh, well, you know, women shouldn't do this job because the work is too undangerous or unpleasant. No, I mean, this is one of those areas that I, that I really, I give employers the benefit of the doubt. I think back to my dad, he was an entrepreneur. I mean, he's a good man. And he would—he never would have let a a, a, a a female do some jobs in some of his businesses because that was quote unquote man's work. And he wasn't trying to be a sexist pig; he was trying to be chivalrous, right? And so I, I think what's important, and we always come back to here, is you think protected classes. You can't—you can't hire based on uh, on you know an age based on uh, a, a gender. Uh, 
uh, a sexual orientation, you have to identify the qualifications of the job. Does the job require lifting over X number of pounds? Does the job require being tall enough to reach a certain height, right? Does the job require, and it's what the job requires, uh, not whom you think are the only people that could fit that job, right? A hundred percent, right? It's not about who can perform it. It's about what we need <clears throat> done. And, you know, you, you find qualified people who can do it and you don't need to limit it based on characteristics. So, yeah. right. I, I think the, the lesson here is really that, you know, BFOQs are not necessarily the way to go and companies that think they might have some business need for only hiring people of a certain religion or sex or national origin, most likely than not, it's not going to pass muster, right? Can you, you know, tell us what happened in this case with the with the the moving company? Like, yeah, so what was the I, I think, here? Yeah, I think it's in its early. I still believe it's uh, in in litigation right <clears> now. I don't think it's uh, you know been been resolved yet. I believe that uh, you know there is information out there that you know the EEOC was seeking millions in terms of a settlement. Uh, and you know, I think their yeah. last off their last demand was somewhere around five million dollars to settle the case. Uh, the company it looks like was still you know nowhere close to that. So you know this is likely one that's going to be litigated. And you know look for that company, it's a big expense now whether they settle or whether they litigate. <clears throat> uh, you know, and that's why you want you know the company. You know, look, they're saying we thought we were doing nothing wrong. Now, again, you know, I can't be certain about this, but, you know, one would hope, you know, they looked into this, maybe spoke to, you know, HR people, spoke to legal people, right, to figure out, you know, if this is a the right type of arrangement. So, uh, you know, that that's what I would suggest looking into these beforehand. And, you know, if you're going to try to exclude a class of people, that should always be a red flag and you should yeah. be, one, you know, considering you know, is there any less restriction or should I just have job requirements and interview people and see who can, uh, you know, perform the job and hire those people regardless? And, and of, to be clear, in this case, you know, so the name of the company and I'll share it because you can you can Google it and find it. it. It's Meathead Movers. So you might think, OK, it's a pretty bro name of a company. Maybe this is a, a sex discrimination, like they're only hiring men because there's a certain sex appeal of the their advertising. This is actually an age discrimination case, right? And, and so, uh, again, I go back to my dad. It's like, okay, I could see how he could have he could have made this mistake based on based on sex, but he certainly could have made it and said, no, let the young guy do that, not the old not the old guy. He probably wouldn't even said those words, right? And I think there's a lot of employers. They really, really, really mean well. And yep. perhaps the population who self-selects for these jobs, it seems logical that it will skew younger. It will skew male. But again, you can't select based on that. You have to select based on the criteria of the job. What are the requirements to perform the job? And, and, right. and this is where they made their mistake based on age. Exactly. At least look, allegedly. You know, at least allegedly, if it's still that. Exactly. That's a, you know they will probably their defense will likely be asserting uh, a BFOQ, but I, I think that's a lesson to employers that <clears throat> again you know treat people of protected categories, treat people equally, focus on the job requirements because you know the exceptions to that are very narrow, and you know you're going to need to really you know. Uh, prove that that would be required by your business. And, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a high hurdle. And, and, and I'll say, I know nothing about Meathead Movers. Uh, you know, maybe I'm being too critical and making fun of the name a little bit uh, in, in jest here. Mad respect for all entrepreneurs. Running a business is hard. Growing a business is harder. So uh, these are just things that you got to be on the lookout for. I, I assume they did not set out intending to break any laws. They probably just thought in old school mindset, I need a bunch of young men to go move a bunch of furniture. In in that got them in trouble. Even if they win this case, this is going to cost a freaking fortune to defend themselves, even if it turns out they're right. Right. Okay. Right. Let's move on to the next one. Um, harassment. So first first topic, discrimination, retaliation. 
I think you may, I think you set up how these aren't always as you know clear cut uh, as they may seem. But I think discrimination generally is probably a little more clear cut than harassment. Man, there are there are the clear cases on ends of spectrum here. Oh, clearly that was harassment. But this is one where where employers get in hot water all the time because they just either they're unaware of what's happening in their shop or they didn't think this was harassment behavior. You know, un- unpack this one for us. Yeah. So exactly. I mean, look, we could talk about harassment issues, you know, for hours, right? Because the, this can come in so many different forms. Now, obviously, you know, the one that typically comes to mind is, you know, sexual harassment, right? You know, that's harassment based on, on sex and, uh, you know, but it can apply to you know other protected categories too, right? You can have a hostile work environment based on race, where you know the workplace is permeated with you know people making inappropriate comments or conduct related to uh, someone's race or you know religion. So you know, again, even though we probably think of of sex when we talk harassment, it applies to all these protected categories. Um, and again, right, it's generally unwanted uh, conduct. And, you know, when we're talking about sex, it can be sexual advances or touching uh, and it's unwelcome. Right. So, you know, I think, you know, there, there are two ways. Right. There's quid pro quo, which is, you know, conditioning some benefit on, uh, you know, on submission to write a sexual favor, something like that. Uh, that's, you know, that's easy to identify. Often it is right, uh, and and it's certainly wrong, right? Um, you know, and then there's just the general hostile work environment where we're talking about severe, pervasive, uh, you know, conduct that just focuses on one of these protected categories. And look, in the end, it's making someone's work environment pretty bad, right? It's offensive. Yeah. It's intimidating. Uh, so I, I think you know a couple examples of this, right? Um, you know, hostile work environment, right? So there's always a question of, right, when do things cross the line over, you know, just general workplace banter versus, you know, what is actionable, right? So, you know, in, in you know, this scenario, in this case, uh, you know, there was a coworker who was, you know, making, uh, you know, gender-based comments to a, uh, a woman and asked her, you know, inappropriate comments, right? This some of it was just telling dirty jokes, right? Which many employers might not see as something bad, but it's not appropriate for the workplace. So there were yeah. uh, dirty jokes. And then look, we're, we're talking about some physical touching, but it, it was not at the level of groping. It was more like along the lines of passing by someone and, you know, you know, kind of brushing by them or yeah. when you're sitting with them, you know, putting a hand on the arm, things like that, which, Again, you know, depending on people's experience, they might not think that's so offensive. But again, is it appropriate for the workplace? And right. the answer is it, it is not. Right? And you, so, you, and I, you and I did a, a, a show on this exact topic. This is one of those things that I think employers get employers get in such bad trouble because of naivete about what the law is. And, and you said the word, I think, two or three times. And it's, it's, the, it's the right word. It's unwanted, right? I'm assuming no one watching today is expecting sexual favors in return for a promotion or a pay raise. I mean, of course that does happen, but giving everybody the benefit of the doubt, if you're watching this show, you probably aren't that person. But it's the things that happen in your shop that either you don't know about, but you're responsible for that environment and employees receiving unwanted jokes, words, touches, whatever, or the things that you think are just innocent. It's the, you don't go up to uh, somebody of your same sex and nudge them with the hip, say, hey, how you doing today? And so, but you do it with one person. And maybe it's not not all people that gender that sex, but it's the one person. How could they not think that that's has some sexual orientation, right? It's these things that they, that employers just think this is no big deal. That's where they get in trouble. So, Brent, yeah. how, how, how do you guide? How do you give practical guidance to business owners in that context 
to that still have to like live in a real world and they don't want some ice water in the veins cold cult, legalistic culture in their business they want to they want to have a fun relational environment yeah no it's, it's a great point and i think one of the keys is you know having an open door policy right and setting a culture where you know, look, you can have that fun, but employees understand and know because they have written policies and they've seen this in, uh, implemented in practice that if they have complaints, they know the various people they can go to and they know that it'll be taken seriously, right? That's the culture that we should, we should strive for because, again, in a lot of these hostile work environment uh, and, you know, harassment cases, you know, things could have really stopped early on if the company had an effective, you know, complaint procedure. But, you know, mm -hmm. often what we find is even though they might have had some procedure in writing about who to complain with, uh, complain to, that the culture was not one of, you know, uh, an open door type of policy where, you know, instead employees felt like they might be subjected to retaliation uh, or, or, you know, uh, or a demotion or, you know, their hours might get taken away if they report this, uh, you know, and that's why it's important that employees know various outlets that they can report these things to, because, you know, in the case I was discussing earlier, right, one of the problems was the supervisor and the alleged harasser were very good friends. And so the employee felt that she couldn't go to the supervisor because, uh, that, you know, she was afraid of that relationship. And, and so I think it's so important to yeah. set that culture, uh, have people understand they can come forward with things and it will be taken seriously. And look, a lot of that starts with training of the managers and supervisors, right? Not just, not just for the managers and supervisors to understand, you know, what they should do and what they should not do, right? Appropriate conduct, everyone should know. But, you know, supervisors really need to understand their obligations go a little bit higher than other employees, where if they see something, if they know about something, whether it's reported to them or not, or they just observe it, they need to go and report that to HR or report it up the, up the chain of command. Uh, because, you know, it's these types of situations, right? Hostile work environment claims, they don't occur, they don't, you know, uh, they're not created overnight, right? right? You know, it needs to be severe and pervasive. So we're typically not talking about <clears throat> a one-time incident or something that went on for one week. Right, so I, I, think, I, sus I suspect not everybody listening is gonna interpret the word severe the same way. I mean, right. just just walking through life every day we all know, we can all point to somebody like, oh, they are so overreacting. And maybe you're right. And maybe they're an edge case. Or maybe you're wrong. But people generally who think that, 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 that that's the problem. C can you make this more real for folks and maybe sh give, give, a, give an a, a example of a court case if you know one off the top of your head? Like, what happened? What was the cost? What was the outcome? Yeah. So, you know, look, uh, I, you know, here's one. Uh, it was a, a restaurant uh, and, you know, a bartender. And we're not talking about this bartender being harassed by customers. It was the owner and a manager, right? That, you know, again, physical contacts. But then here's a key, right? It, it wasn't necessarily, oh, I'll give you a promotion or, you know, we'll only hire you if you, you know, submit to my advances. It was much more subtle than that. It was, we're only going to give you the most lucrative shifts if you submit to my advances. And so this individual did not. Someone else did submit to those advances and they were given those more lucrative shifts where, you know, tips would be better. So again, looking at that, it's not as if the, you know, hours were cut, right? She kept the same hours, but her, you know, income went down. And so in that one, you know, once she complained, she was terminated. So there's a retaliatory uh, aspect to it as well. Yeah. And it was a total $2.5 million verdict, a jury verdict, uh, a million in punitive damages and another uh, 1.5 million uh, in compensatory damages, including, you know, uh, emotional distress, pain and suffering. Um, you know, and that's real. And that, you know, that bartender, right, probably a minimum wage employee, right? So, 
you know, damages are often yeah. going to be, you know, they're not going to be proportional to, you know, the, the level of the employee. It's proportional to the amount of harm uh, that's uh, that's imposed. And so, I, you know, and I think one thing we 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 never really mention in these verdicts, right? Because you know, that's a two point five million dollar verdict to get through a jury trial. That that company probably had at least half a million in attorneys' fees as well, right? Yeah. To get through a trial. So the, and, the cost. And just how, how many? How many small businesses, and I'll say small, under 50 employees, how many survive? Uh, most, most of them can't afford to pay the 500000 in legal fees all at once. They're going to do pay as you go, and they're going to be paying off that attorney for a long time probably. They, yeah, I mean, they probably right. can't write the check. The check would bounce on the $2.5 million, right? I mean, right. these truly are existential threats. This is just stuff you can't mess around with. Yeah, exactly. Any any other cases or examples you want to talk about that you think people need to understand around harassment? Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, one of the uh, I mentioned the complaint procedures. Uh, but, you know, I think, again, you know, we talk about this with respect to discrimination, but also harassment. And the biggest key is just consistency among employees. Right. The consistency of how you treat them, the consistency of how you apply your company's policies, right? And so, again, you know, if managers have policies and, you know, they're able to apply them, then you're right, there should always be someone up above them making sure that it's done, you know, consistently, right? You know, yeah. it can be very simple things, right? We can, you know, terminate one person because there are no call, no show for three days uh, in a row, but then, you know, when it's, uh, you know, someone under 40, you know, maybe we're not doing that. So, you know, those things, even if there are legitimate reasons for treating people differently, again, that's fine, but document those, right? We treat people consistently and we document, um, you know, discipline. So right, just for sake of time, I'm going to move us, but I want, I want you to hit one more topic on, on harassment. Cause I think this is maybe the, one of the biggest blind spots for small business owners. Um, is their responsibility for the environment. I was literally talking to a small business owner uh, yesterday. They had a Christmas party over the weekend. After the Christmas party, two employees with met their husbands in a bar in the same strip mall, lots of alcohol involved, and there was an altercation between these two couples. Monday morning, the argument publicly continues in the business. It's the stuff that happens outside of work that creeps in and owners think, oh, that's, that's their problem, not my problem. But they, as an owner, you still have a responsibility for, for maintaining what is acceptable behavior in your business. Can, can you speak to that, please? Absolutely. So... You know, let's start with the rule that flows from everything you just said. Harassment can occur anywhere, right? It's not limited to the office. It's not limited to the holiday party. It can occur outside of those areas. It can occur online. Uh, and so, you know, a, a company saying, hey, you know, we're not going to deal with you, you know, the, the two of you. These are issues you had, you know, uh, with your families outside of here. You know, go deal with it on your own time. Right. That's not an appropriate response. Right. Because this becomes a workplace issue because it's involving two of your employees and potentially inappropriate conduct. Right. So, you know, I think, you know, certainly, you know, companies need to, owners need to get over that, you know, that mental block that, you know, if it's not on the clock, it's, it's not our what we're dealing with. Um, and you know, similarly, right, it doesn't even need to be your manager or your supervisors or your employees who are doing the harassing, right? It can be a vendor who's coming in uh, and dealing with one of your employees. It can be customers dealing with your employees. Uh, so, you know, harassment is just very broad, right? And so, you know, companies, you know, should not, employers should not think, you know, there are these, you know, bright lines where, you know, after hours, I don't deal with it. Right. Uh, that, yeah. That's not that's not what you're held to as an employer. 
Tell me if I tell me if I ha have this right. So here's a case is, you know, only this person, you know, he, he didn't want to know. He didn't want to be involved. But one person started talking about it first thing they came in Monday morning. And so you there's no such thing. It, 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 you're not going to stand in front of a judge and say, oh, but that was off the record or that happened off hours. Knowledge is knowledge. When you know something happened, you have to address it. And so it doesn't mean that the owner had to jump in and try to be an arbiter of this ridiculousness that happened in the bar after the holiday party. What the owner's responsibility is, is to say, hey, not sure what happened. I don't want to know. I'd prefer if you keep me out of it. But this is the place of business. And these are the rules that are of acceptable behavior here. My request is that you don't let this interfere with, with our work. You don't talk about this at work. My personal recommendation after work, I think you guys should go figure this out so you don't carry any uh, uh, ill feelings. But this is what's going to be acceptable behavior in this business. And this is what's not. Is that yeah, exactly. And look, even still, I, I think you might go further that look, even, you know, you guys, you shouldn't be having inappropriate uh, communications outside of this. So we need to make sure that you're able, you're, you're able to move past this and deal with each other professionally, whether it's, you know, you know, because again, right, if, if as the moment they leave work, you know, one is just, you know, blasting the other and putting, you know, inappropriate things on, you know, social media about the other, you know, that that continues to spill into the workplace. So, yeah, you know, these are tricky issues. And look, the, the thing with harassment is, you know, no two issues are the same. There's always some background, different facts. Uh, but again, that's why, you know, you, you want people to feel comfortable to bring this up so that, look, the company can figure out what, if anything, it can do to make it a better work environment for all yeah. these people. So to listeners, no surprise that the lawyer here said to go a little bit further uh, than than the business guy, but 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 point taken here. I, I do think it's fair to say when these things arise, eventually you're going to sit in front of a judge or an arbiter, and the laws are what the laws are. They're black and white. They're 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 words on paper. But at the end of the day, a human being, a judge or arbiter, is going to make decisions. And the more leaning in you are trying to address trying to create a safe work environment trying to create a healthy work environment trying to stamp out this kind of issues even if you fumble your way through it and do it poorly it's gonna it's gonna reflect so much better on you when it comes time to decision uh than if you just did nothing and just turned a blind eye that's not an exaggeration is it brian no that's absolutely correct it's the 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 cases I see with the most damages, with you know the worst uh, you know outcomes for the employers, are ones where things are brushed under the rug and just not dealt with, where complaints are ignored. Yeah. So again, you know, you might not always know how to best handle a complaint, uh, but the starting point is knowing you need to handle it and starting. And then look, there are resources like you know, sure software, you know, there are resources to help you through that. But understanding it's something you have to deal with is the first part. Okay, let's move on to the, the next probably most common. And I think this one is more legalistic, because people get in trouble for breaking rules they didn't know existed. But it's not. That's your problem. It is your responsibility to know the law. You don't get to tell the police officer, well, I didn't know that the speed limit went from 55 down to 45. I didn't see that sign. You're still getting the ticket. It's your responsibility to know the law. And so this is the category of wage and hour. And this is where state and federal departments of labor get involved. Take, take us through what, where is it that uh, employers make the biggest mistakes, find themselves fined, sued? How do these actions come up? And then ultimately, what, what should they do to prevent yeah. So, no, it's great. You mentioned the Department of Labor. That's often something, you know, employers overlook, right? You think of private lawsuits are typically the way, you know, wage claims are coming about. But there's the U.S. Department of Labor and then, you know, state departments. And they are, you know, the federal Department of Labor is certainly active. State to state, it varies. Uh, and they will initiate their own investigations. Uh, you know, the DOL can, you know, uh, you know, file you know, uh, actions if they're not able to resolve uh, matters. Um, and so I think the biggest thing we have to be concerned about in terms of wage and hour uh, exposure is that 
unlike your typical discrimination or harassment claim, which usually just involves a single employee, wage and hour matters can involve lots of employees. And, you know, basically, if your company is making a mistake, whether you know about it or not, right, intent is not even a requirement. It's just whether or not you got it right here. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you have multiple employees that your practice or policy applies to, you know, the whole, you know, whether it's, you know, all your sales force or all the warehouse workers or what have you, that is exposure beyond just one person. And so, you know, maybe one person files the complaint, but the DOL might want to, you know, audit your entire company or audit that entire classification. Or if we're in private litigation, we're talking a class action. Uh, and that is often the leverage that plaintiff's attorneys and the DOL has that these can become, you know, enormous, you know, group uh, grouped claims. Uh, and so, you know, compliance is so important. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the, uh, we'll go through a few things. What we'll really focus on here is, you know, your non-exempt employees. Those are your employees that get an hourly rate of pay. And yeah. when they work over 40 hours in a work week, they're getting overtime at time and a half their regular rate. Um, so, you know, I, I recently saw, you know, I thought this was a, a good case to bring up, uh, you know, not to scare anyone, but it, it's just, you know, notable because it's historic. Uh, the, the Department of Labor in 2023 obtained its largest Fair Labor Standards Act. That's the federal wage and hour law, uh, the largest FLSA verdict in its history. Uh, this is a federal case uh, in Pennsylvania and the, uh, the DOL obtained a $22 million verdict uh, covering a class of uh, over 7,500 employees. Mm. Uh, and this raises an interesting issue because in this case, the damages were not enormous on a per person basis, right? This case was about, uh, you know, it was a uh, battery making plant where the laborers were subject to, you know, interacting with, you know, toxic uh, chemicals and such. And so there was certain, you know, donning and doffing of uh, protective equipment and, you know, showering after the uh, shift, which, again, these went beyond just regular generic safety measures. These were specific to, you know, the work being done and what they were being exposed to. Yeah. And the company didn't pay the employees for that time. You know, it could have been just, you know, maybe five minutes at the beginning, beginning of the shift or 10 minutes at the end. You know, it, it depended. But, you know, not huge amounts of time. But it adds up over, you know, the statutory period is three years. And then, you know, over 7,000 employees, you know, these things add up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, th that case teaches us, look, if you have any any work, anything productive or even potentially not productive work that your employees are doing before they clock in for the day or after they clock in for the day, even if it's just changing clothes or something like that in a locker room, you should look into that. You should consider whether on a daily basis there might be a few minutes of time you're not capturing because, again, to employer, you know, five minutes at the beginning, five minutes at the end of the day, not a big issue. To an employee, that's 10 minutes a day, almost an hour a week. You know, that's, you know, dozens of hours over a year and add. Uh, and, like, and like you say, it's it's not in this case, it wasn't having to put on, hey, you got to get dressed for work anyway. You got to shower and be presentable when you come to work anyway. This was required because of the type of chemicals and whatnot that they were exposed to. So you right. had to do it. It really was part of the job. Right. Yeah. And what the courts say is if the time spent doing these things is uh, indispensable to the duties the employee is performing, th then it's compensable. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, again, you know, the courts analyze each one, you know, again, no two of these are necessarily alike, what employees are doing or what the job they then do after they change. Uh, but it's certainly something that for an employer, if you're not capturing uh, that type of time, you know, look, you may be right. You, you, you might not. It might not be compensable, but it's something to look into and ensure that you're doing it the right way. Right. Um, right. 
And uh, then, you know what? And, and for anybody listening and saying, oh, that, that's big company stuff. I mean, last year, it wasn't just that the DOL, I think I have this right. It was, that, that was a record uh, single verdict. But I, I want to say DOL has captured in 2023 over $100 million in just fines, penalties uh, for, for uh, improperly, whether intentional or not, paying employees. And this includes very small firms. Right. No, exactly. I mean, look, I deal with, you know, the Department of Labor all the time. And look, it can range from a mom and pop shop to, you know, a, a national or multi, you know, uh, or an international uh, you know, company, right? They don't, they don't discriminate. If they find the complaint, they're going to look at it, you know, and they're going to pursue a claim, you know, at a, you know, a small pizza shop, the same way they would pursue a claim at a, a much larger company. Uh, Brian, because- could you put in a couple buckets for, for all the wage number? It's a really big category. Um, and maybe, maybe I'll set up first. So if you think about wage and hour, there was always, uh, you know, what, 1938, the, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act first passed FLSA. And so you had a single, uh, overtime, you had a single minimum wage, you had basic record keeping requirements, but, uh, along about 10, like maybe 12 years ago, all of a sudden a couple States started saying that they would have their own minimum wage. Well, today, I think there's something like 155 unique jurisdictions between states and counties and city municipalities that they layer on each other. And so um, if you're some states that don't, they just adopt the federal minimum wage. Other states, okay, we have a different one. It's usually higher. But others, it might be, okay, well, if you're in this city or this municipality and you offer benefits, this is your minimum wage. If you don't offer benefits, it's this. Or if you're above or below this employee threshold, that's just the minimum wage component. The states in these local municipalities also layering on leave types, paid leave, unpaid leave, what's required, what's not required, uh, overtime rules. Is it eight in a day? Is it 40 in a week? Are there combinations thereof? The, 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 my point here is these things just are getting so complex as they layer on top of each other, sometimes conflicting with each other, that – Man, businesses are just running blind here, and there's probably way too much that we could ever even unpack all of it. Give like the top three areas that you see businesses unintentionally get in trouble with wage and hour. Sure. Uh, so the first one that I see way too often is not having the right type of time records for uh, your hourly employees. And so when we say the right type, really, I'm saying it can be anything. It can be any type of contemporaneous time tracking, right? So we all know, you know, we've got biometrics, you know, time clocks. Th- those are great and very effective and create, you know, great, uh, you know, documentation. And it's, yeah. you know, it can be electronic. But, you know, look, for, you know, small, some small businesses, it can even be as easy as giving a piece of paper to the employee and saying, write down the time you come in each morning and the time you leave. And, you know, when you take a break, write down the time you go out and the time you get back. So, you know, having those contemporaneous time records of the start and end times, just so, so important. Um, And, you know, if you don't have those, number one, you're already violating the law by not keeping the records. And number two, you're going to be way behind the eight ball in disproving uh, the employees' allegations that they worked, you know, they'll, they'll come and say, you know, we worked 70 hours a week. You're going to say, no, it was 30. But without time records, very difficult. So, yeah, you know, that's number one. Time records are, are just so important. Uh, the, the second issue I see a whole lot of it somewhat relates to, you know, that issue, but it's uh, knowing who can be paid an hourly rate. Uh, and who can be paid, you know, uh, a salary. So really, we start with anyone can be paid an hourly rate in overtime. Uh, but there are only certain exemptions, certain categories of employees who can be paid a salary. Right. Yeah. And so there are rules, both, as you mentioned, you know, there's going to be the federal rule about that, but your state might have even stricter requirements yeah. uh, than the FLSA about, you know, who, what, what their duties are, and how much they need to be paid on a salary each week uh, in order to qualify for the exemption. 
so that that's a second yeah, th- one. Th- this is this is a huge one. I was just talking to somebody else this week. Um, in, in this, uh, I would encourage everybody to go check out. I think Brian, you and I did a show on this a few weeks back. I think we're probably going to do another one very soon. Uh, 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 DOL has proposed uh, a new minimum, not minimum wage, but a new minimum salary for exempt employees. It's going to rock some people's world. This is a big, big change. Uh, when and probably if this thing this thing happens, which is pretty soon. So I invite everybody to to go look at our past recording of that one, and then and stay tuned for the the, the coming update. But so many business owners, I think, oh. Clearly, this is an hourly job. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on salary. Well, there's no such thing, not not in the eyes of the law anyway. Like, I, hey, I want to even out your income. I want to make it more predictable. I want you to feel a sense of prestige, like you've you've leveled up, and now you're on salary. That's not how the law looks at it. There are very clear laws, not rules, not guidelines, not suggestions. There are clear laws on how, whether you do or don't qualify as an exempt employee, meaning you're exempt from overtime or you're not exempt. It's super black and white, right? Exactly. Okay. And look, and where there are gray areas, look, that's where you should seek guidance, you know, from, you know, uh, from an HR resource, from an attorney, right? Because that's when, you know, look, if you, if you try your best, you seek outside resources to get, you know, to understand how you should be paying someone and you make a mistake. You may you'll still owe them those unpaid wages, yeah. but it's a potential way to avoid you know the the liquidated damages, which basically right. double the uh, the unpaid wages. Right. Okay. So keeping time records exempt versus non exempt classification. What's what's number three for wage and hour? Yeah, and I, I think a, a big one, and I'd, I'd group these together. And I know we, we've discussed this you know previously. I, I would talk about you know travel time and break time. Uh, you know. Employers really need to understand, you know, when a break is truly not compensable. Uh, same way with travel time, when it's not compensable versus when yeah. it's going to be compensable. Again, I think we did a, a pretty uh, deep dive on, on that uh, previously, yeah. um, so people can check that out. But certainly, you know, don't just uh, employers shouldn't just think they're on a break, you know, it's not compensable. You need to make sure they're not working during that break, right? They're completely relieved of their duties, yeah. right? They're not, you know, eating lunch at their desk and getting interrupted by a, uh, you know, a, a customer call, right? That could, that five minute customer call in the middle of their, uh, you know, 30 minute break could mean that whole break is now compensable. Yeah. Uh, so, and, you know, and maybe are, not even take the call, but are you, Truly, is that time truly yours to do with what you want, or are you required to take the call in case it comes? Right, because right. now you're at work. Right, like right. Are you even if you don't take a call, were you told you had to stay at your desk to eat lunch in case you got a call? Right, that's right. limiting you. Now right. you you know you can't go out and enjoy it your your own free time. So yeah, yeah there, there's a lot of nuance there, but understanding that there can be issues and looking into that's the first step. Brian, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna try to speed us through our last couple of topics. We could, do, um, we can and have done hour long segments on each of these in and of themselves. But let's hit the hit the highlights. So, uh, topic number four is this failure to provide reasonable accommodations. Give us give us an example where somebody thought they did nothing wrong. What what did they do wrong? What was the cost? What happened? And, and how should employers be thinking about being proactive here? Yeah. So, you know, I have an example and I, I like it because it hits on, uh, you know, mental health issues, which is something that society, you know, we're, we're seeing more discussion of it at large. Uh, but, you know, the law, it's, it's always applied, you know, equally to physical, uh, you know, disabilities, just like mental disabilities. Right. So, you know, in this one case, right, an employee uh, didn't want a party for his birthday, he told the office manager, yeah, I suffer from an anxiety disorder. Parties are no good. You know, please don't do that. Something got lost in communication there. They ended up having a party. The employee has a panic attack, goes home, right? Then comes back a day or two later and the supervisor confronts the employee about, you know, his, you know, what he thought was a negative reaction to the birthday party triggers yet another uh, panic attack. Then you have an issue where 
three days later, the company terminates this employee because the you know manager is questioning whether this person is you know quote unquote stable, and the uh, other employees in the office are you know are saying their concerns for their safety. They're they're frightened about you know what occurred, and so they fire this employee. Now you know we'll, we'll talk about what they should have done, but that that resulted in a four hundred and fifty thousand dollar verdict. Uh, right. It was, you know, 300,000 in emotional distress, uh, over 100,000 in lost wages. Uh, and so, you know, the takeaway from this, you know, is a good reminder that number one, right, uh, mental health issues can be disabilities. Uh, and, you know, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, covers mental or physical impairments that substantially limit. Um, you know, uh, one or more major life activities. And so, uh, again, you know, we're talking about accommodations, right? So employers should understand their obligations to uh, accommodate both physical uh, disabilities and mental ones. And so, and, you know, the ADA even, you know, requires employers to go a little bit beyond what they might have to do otherwise when it comes to some mental uh, disabilities, specifically, you know, where where an employer can easily see that there is um, a mental impairment and that it's possible that because of that, the employee is not really aware of the impact of their of their behavior. Right. That it's it's incumbent on the employer to talk to them about uh, a, a, a reasonable accommodation. Right. The same way yeah. that. If an employer is aware that an individual has a mental impairment, right, and they're seeing there's poor job performance, right, the, the, the guidance there would typically be, you know, that you should, in, that the employer should initiate the interactive process and discuss, you know, if they might need anything, right? Brian, is uh, there, and, and, we're, and we're basically at time, so I, I want to give it two minutes on FMLA, but is the issue here that the, employee gave notice of the concerns, hey, I have anxiety issues. And therefore, at, from that moment forward, the onus is on the employer to provide reasonable accommodations for that anxiety disorder, right? It, right. So cause, I, cause, say, I, can imagine, I can imagine a scenario if 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 I got have a have an employee and maybe Maybe he's quiet and doesn't talk much, and I really don't have a, a, much of a relationship with him. And I actually want to do something really nice for him, and so I throw him a birthday party. And he freaks out and leaves. I'm like, well, you don't just get to leave work. And second offense, no, you're gone. I, I mean, I can see that that could seem reasonable. The the, the the am I am I getting it right that the difference here is that notice was given. Right. Notice was given. And I think, look, before we get to providing a reasonable accommodation, and I, I think a lot of employers, you know, think about it this way. They're just thinking, you know, all right, now I got to give a, an accommodation. What is that? But think about the interactive process, right? There's supposed to be this interactive process before that accommodation is given about, you know, hey, you know, what do you, is there something that you need? You know, what can we do for you? How can we, you know, help you succeed, yeah. right? Those are the types of conversations an employer yeah. might have if they're, you know, not sure if this is something related to, you know, that uh, a mental impairment, right? Or something, or even, you know, physical. So I think it's about having these conversations because look, at the end of the day, you know, regardless of what the law says, it is much easier for an employer to keep an employee and help them succeed than to fire them, search for a yeah. new employee, hire them, train yeah. them, and then see if that one works out, right? So right. even taking the ADA out of the equation, you know, it's something where, you know, you should be seeing how you can help your employees you know, succeed. And again, you know, if you have information that the employee, you know, has a disability, Again, it might the law might not always necessarily say employer you need to go to them, but you know a request for an accommodation doesn't need to be you know there are no magic words. So you know some employers you know in in my experience you know in some of the litigation kind of try to skirt around that like they probably know that person needs something, but you know hey you didn't you didn't request the accommodation. Yeah, oftentimes 
you know, the yeah. issue will be, well, you should have at least had a discussion. Just had like we talked earlier, the, these things get the, the, the law is the law, but these things, the judgments are awarded. In this case, a $450,000 judgment. Holy cow. Um, it's human beings that dispense these things. And so I can just imagine, imagine that's you. And uh, whether you think this is a horrible case and what's, this is a sign of what's wrong with America, or you think uh, that poor gentleman, how dare they treat him so poorly? I don't care where you fall in that spectrum. But just got to imagine you're sitting in front of a judge and were you the, I don't care, go rub some dirt on it. You, you, whatever superlative uh, or Hey, I want you to be successful here. Tell me what I can do to accommodate. And then I forgot about it and had the birthday party anyway. Which one is the judge going to throw the book at, right? Because at the end of the day, you're going to make mistakes. You can't be perfect in how you handle these things. But intent and your behavior matters a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. I think you summed up that case right then and there in those couple sentences. Exactly. If they had done the birthday party, but afterwards realized, uh, let's discuss with him, you know, how can we make this work better for you? Yeah. Instead, yeah. they went the other way, right? Rub some dirt on it. Bye. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. We're at time. Just real quick. FMLA, ADA. Where is it that employers get themselves in trouble here? Yep. So I think real simply, you know, look, we can't get into the FMLA in five minutes, let alone 10 or 15. But there's a lot there to unpack. But I think when you have employees uh, who need leave, you should always be looking at both the FMLA, if it applies to your company, right? That's 50 or more employees within a 75 mile radius. Uh, and the ADA, which applies to employers of 15 uh, employees or more. So it's important to understand that leave can come up under one or both of those statutes. Uh, and that even, you know, an employee could take their 12 weeks of FMLA protected leave and then there might need to be a reasonable accommodation under the ADA after that for some additional leave. So I think it's just understanding, um, you know, what laws apply to you. And again, as you said earlier, Mike, there could be state and even city leave laws that make this uh, process even you know, more of a uh, complication for employers. Uh, but the key is figuring out those laws, getting help if you need that, having the right policies in place and then training managers, as we always discuss, right, when it comes to yeah. leave, right, how to recognize a request for leave or a need. And then really internally for the company, knowing how to administer these types of leaves. Uh, certainly there's some more requirements as it uh, pertains to FMLA, uh, but understanding that these are the types of leaves that are available and considering, you know, what the employee might be entitled to, you know, very important. You know, don't just think, you know, uh, ADA leave of absence is an accommodation, right? That, you know, FMLA could apply too. Right. state laws right. could apply as well. Right. All right. So top five areas that we talked about where uh, uh, employers find themselves at the wrong end of a lawsuit. It's discrimination in combination, especially with retaliation. It's harassment. It's wage and hour. It's failure to provide reasonable accommodations and leave types uh, around FMLA. Uh, Brian, I, I think if I had to give one piece of advice for, for employers, if you're, if you're at a big company, big companies have HR departments. Mid-sized companies have at least HR staff that are certified, you know, SHRM certified professionals. They know these laws. They can help give you guidance. The average small business doesn't. They're white knuckling it. Um, of course, it is your responsibility to know the laws. We'd love to help you. Brian would love to help you. But get professional help. But intent matters. Documentation matters. Behavior matters. And if you just treat people with the utmost respect, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's going to go a, a heck of a long ways. So, Brian, anything you, you want to add in closing? No, I, I, I echo what you say that, look, if you're a small company dealing with this, it can be overwhelming. But there are benefits to looking into this, to complying, to getting outside external help to comply. It's not just going to make you more compliant and give you less legal exposure, but these all contribute to better workplace, better culture, which should have the impact of minimizing your, your potential uh, legal risks. Yeah. Brian, always enjoy talking to you. Thank you. And to everyone else, thank you so much. Until next week. 
At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront cost and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws, visit AssureSoftware.com.